0: Hey, gals. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell her what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are going to be talking with Leia Chang. She is a historian who has written a book on three young queens in European history. Sweet. Let's get into this. All right. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The
1: Other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history
0: class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. All right, Brooke, have you heard of Mary, Queen of Scots? Yes, I have. Okay, Uh, what do you know about her? um she's really impactful to several different wars yeah and the division of ireland scotland and england something in there <laughs> i'm gonna go really high pitch and yeah, push, i, I just, know squeeze, squeeze, um, squeeze. Um, yeah so she um she's queen of scotland mm-hmm. and she's cousin to queen elizabeth yep and uh the first the og yeah her life ends with queen elizabeth accusing her of treason and chopping her head off yikes yeah day. so what's often um lost about her is that she becomes queen at a really 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 young age yeah wasn't she like 12 i don't know off the top of my head i believe Leia tells us so we'll, we'll have hold, to to hold that, that okay. thought um, but she's really young and she's actually sent to France to be raised because um, she's, you know, oh, she's an orphan. I think I've watched a very bad show that tries to document her life because doesn't she marry a king in Scotland? Like the, young, but they're both young. She, So she's betrothed to the king of France. King of France. Okay. Yeah. And the king's um, mom is Catherine de' Medici. Yes. She is also a very famous queen and also young, you know, a young mom. And, um, Catherine has a daughter who, uh, I honestly like know very little about Elizabeth de Valois and, um, her daughter is married off and becomes queen of Spain. And so you've got this queen of France, queen regent of France, this queen regent of Spain, and then this like straight up queen of Scotland, all, under the, same all roof. under the same roof, um, in these early years. And just like, what a cool story to highlight three women, you know? So I think there's a WB show called rain. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where I'm like, I don't I think that's historical. <laughs> it is so not and so but there's like a lot of teen sex <laughs> Th- that is true um, it's very like dawson's cream <laughs> in 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 france, france. in france yeah, yeah. anyways yeah. all right maybe yeah. don't use that show as a reference it, but not a good reference it's all, back. it's all coming back so i'm really excited for those of you who have seen that show to actually, actually get an accurate <laughs> moment of this yeah. okay well i'm excited this is this is very interesting to me i'm yeah. excited so let's have Leia introduce herself my name is Leia Redmond Chang. I am a scholar
1: and a former professor and have just written a book um, that is called Young Queens, three Renaissance, three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power.
2: Three queens. And who are your three queens?
1: My three queens are um, from the Renaissance. So we're talking the uh, 1500s, the 16th century. They are Catherine de' Medici who was the queen consort of France, and then the queen mother, her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, who's the queen consort of Spain, and Catherine's daughter-in-law, who is Mary, queen of Scots, who is both the queen consort of Spain, uh, of France, and um, the uh, reigning queen of Scotland. And by queen consort, I should clarify what I mean by that. That means that these women are the wives of kings, um, unlike Mary Stewart, who is the sovereign queen of Scotland, which means that she rules in her own right over Scotland.
2: Yeah, she's so cool. Well, so I I have to like add that there's a show on the stars about Catherine De and I'm really excited. I watched that show, and I'm really excited for you to set me straight here because I know it's not accurate, but I still love it. <laughs> Well, it's it's it's
1: really, um, yeah, stars at the the Serpent Queen (laughs) is definitely playing into a certain mythologized view of Catherine de' Medici, which has been really, really hard to let go. It's something that's persisted over centuries. We just love this view of Catherine de' Medici. I think we really like a bad girl and an evil queen. Uh, But there are a lot of these mythologies floating around about all of these women. So uh, sometimes it can be really hard to get at the truth
2: we do have a lesson plan on our website asking you know whether she really was a dark queen. and I think people would enjoy checking that out, but I'm excited to share with them a bit more about your book because I think this could be a really interesting way to you know engage students in a longer narrative and especially getting these three women together like what a what an undertaking. <laughs> so I'm really impressed about you. so, Why do you think this is such an important topic, these three women in particular, um, for teachers to bring into the classroom? I think there's a way I, I could say a couple of things. First of all, I think
1: there's a way in which when we look this far back into history, there's a kind of flattening that happens around historical characters, men and women, but especially the women. Uh, it's really easy to kind of forget that these were real people with real emotions and very, very complex lives, that they're not just sort of black and white, evil or good characters. So one of the things that I set out to do with this book is to create a really full portrait, a very intimate portrait of These women and to kind of show what it was like to be young and female and royal in the Renaissance. So in that sense, it's really a a, a kind of a different view that works against traditional history. Um, But the other thing, because I was setting out to do this complex portrait of women. The book tries to look at history from a female perspective, not only talking about issues that would have been important to women. And particularly when I say women, I should qualify, you know, for the most part in this book, you know, these are young girls. These are teenagers. So issues that would have been important to teenage girls, some which seem really different from concerns that we would have today, but some which seem awfully similar, actually. I think in that sense, it's a a different Um, There's a different agenda, a different way of telling history, a different methodology that um, starts to unfurl in the book rather than thinking about, um, say, the major events such as the Reformation or the Italian Wars or the Wars of Religion from a male dominant point of view. It's looking at some of these things through a female perspective.
2: I really like that you take time to emphasize how they're young, how they're teenagers. And I think, you know, when you're in teaching young people, it's always nice to draw in those examples of like, no, these are people like your age doing these things, you know, that's so cool. Um, So I could see it being a really relatable topic for young learners. I, I think
1: that we often forget, I know for myself, when I was, um, When I was a professor, when I was researching these women, I forget how young they actually are when they're in the middle of these events. Um, And so for, for me, it was a discovery process as well to remember, oh, yeah, you know, when Mary Stewart is meeting with the Protestant leader, John Knox, she's only 18. Or when Elizabeth the Valois gets married, she's only 13. You know, what does that actually look like? Uh, so, you know, I, I was forced to ask myself these questions and to kind of reset, um, you know, my my understanding of the period over and over again in writing this book.
2: Mm-hmm. So um, your book is written in a sort of narrative style. and. Um, But at the same time, you've done a ton of research on these women and you've been in the archives and you've been digging. And are you fluent in French? You must be, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I used to be a a professor of French literature. So, yes, that is.
2: (laughs) This is your thing. This is what you do. This is my thing. (laughs) Yes. So were there any sources in particular that you stumbled upon that you found really helpful? And are there any of those sources that teachers could use in the classroom with young learners to understand these women better? Yeah, there are. So
1: first, let me just say, actually, the fact that you brought up that I used to be a professor of French literature, that was actually really important to this project, I think, because um, some of the ways that we're trained in literature are a little bit different than sometimes uh, what happens in training in history, certainly at, say, a secondary school level. Um, In literature, we're, we're trained to look really closely at certain details and very small details and you know kind of massage them until we can kind of see what their relationship is to the much bigger picture and this happens in history too but it, it it really happens in literature. And I think that um, for writing this book, that method was very important to me because sometimes I would stop on a little detail, something that hadn't really been treated in the histories before and ask myself over and over again, well, you know, what does this mean? Was what, what is its significance? And eventually I could see um, and, and build its relationship to the bigger picture. And I think this often happens um, with the history of women is that sometimes we have to look at very small, seemingly insignificant details to pull out their story. So I so I just want to say that. And that's why it's actually worth going back to primary texts, even primary texts that we kind of know already and look more carefully, uh, more closely at certain details because certain other different stories can emerge. But for this book in particular, um, as you said, yes, I had to do a lot of digging in the archives in languages other than English, uh, a lot of French, some Spanish, um, you know, the Italians, especially the Venetian ambassadors were so important to this period. So much of what we know from this period comes actually from ambassador's reports or diplomatic letters. You know, that's the first thing I would say. You know, if you can find ambassador's reports that are available to the general reader Uh, You know, that would be the first place to go. And the Venetians in particular are very, very important. But another great place in English um, are the calendar of state papers, which are um, by calendar. It's basically a compendium of state papers um, in English history. But you know, English scholars who are putting these things together pulled a lot of resources from foreign archives as well. So you can get a really good sense of what's going on, not just in England, but also in France and Spain and Scotland by looking at the calendar of state papers, and they're available online. So that's really, really useful. I think because of just a, a broader interest now in uh, the complexity of European history. There are more scholars who are producing um, short books of documents um, that are, you know, ex- um, extremely useful for setting the Reformation or the Renaissance in general. And one that I found so useful um, is actually related to um, an event that happens in the epilogue of my book. So kind of after the main time, time period of young queens, but is very important to the history of the Reformation is uh, the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre, which was this huge massacre in 1572 at the site of Catherine de' Medici's or the the, the wedding of Catherine de' Medici's youngest daughter, um, Marguerite de Valois. And uh, what happens is there is some sort of trigger moment And there is a mob reaction and thousands and thousands of Protestants are killed by Catholics in Paris. Well, Barbara Diefendorf has produced a wonderful compendium of primary documents um, about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, what is leading up to it, um, how it. Unfurls and then the aftermath. And I think it's tremendous because um, it's one of the few widely available resources where you really hear the voices of everyday people um, talking about this phenomenon, which, you know, historians really know about this. Um, People who study the Reformation know about this, but I think that the general public in general doesn't know about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre.
2: Yeah, I only recently stumbled upon this event and I you know, one of the things that I found really interesting is that Catherine de Medici is sort of sometimes blamed for it. And um, where do you stand on that after all of your (laughs) research?
1: (laughs) I mean, you could really have, you could really have, you know, a whole argument with people about this. And, but it's, it's really important to know that she is blamed because that is probably one of the reasons why she's been seen as this black queen ever since yeah. um and I, my
2: understanding pro- is that she generally did a lot to create peace between protestants and catholics and she, then this whole event seems, is blamed on her,
1: yes so. yes she seems much more interested in uh in you know compromise between the two sides protestants and, and catholics in france um much to the chagrin of other monarchs in Europe who did not like her policies of toleration. Um, and a lot of a lot of Protestants and Catholics in France hated her policies of toleration too. So yeah, and, but, but she really stuck with it. And then this event happens in 1572. The truth is, is that we will never truly know the truth. We will never know what happened. But I, I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Um, a number of scholars... Uh, I tend to think that probably what happened is that there was a royal order um, to assassinate the Protestant leadership to kind of, you know, diffuse their power by eliminating the leadership. But that once the first, um, you know, effort at uh, murder happened, it just riled up a mob reaction because Paris at the time was really on edge. Paris uh, was a very Catholic city, and a number of Huguenots or Protestants had come into Paris for this wedding, and tensions are running really high. And of course, by that time, you know, war has been waged in in France for for decades. So everyone is at uh, their wits' end, basically. And then you, you can kind of see how it would happen. There's 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 something that happens that's a trigger, and then the reaction is explosive. So. I would I wouldn't say that Catherine is entirely innocent, but I I don't believe that she actually ordered a wholesale, you know, uh, murder of her Protestant subjects.
2: Well, thank you for letting me pry into your political <laughs> position. <laughs> I know it's not very satisfactory so that that event appears in your epilogue so tell us a little bit about the scope of your of your book and how do you weave these three women's lives together okay um so
1: yes the 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 main action of my book um it, it focuses um, on about 20 years, 23 years um, exactly, which is really the, the lifespan of Elizabeth de Beauvoir, um the young French princess who becomes the Queen of Spain.
2: Uh, of course, you know, She's the only whole book is actually. Much- She's only 23 years old. When she dies. I don't know if that's a spoiler, but yes, yes. Uh, Yeah, I know. They are so young.
1: They are so young. They are so young. And and definitely with Elizabeth, I I often wonder what would have happened if she had lived. I I really think a number of things might have been different um, had she lived. She she really was her mother's daughter, and um, her her mother was really training her how to be a, a political actor. (laughs) <laughs> and she was learning. And, you know, had she lived, things might've gone quite differently, but, but she doesn't live. Okay. But I was saying that, you know, so the, the, the main action I, I would say happens over her, her lifespan, but I do start with Catherine de' Medici as a young girl. Um, so overall it's about 40 years because I, I was very invested in, uh, in depicting Catherine's experiences, both a child and a young woman, because the the challenges that she has to grapple with aren't really that different from the challenges that her daughter, Elizabeth, and her daughter-in-law, Mary, have to deal with. It's just that, you know, they make slightly different choices, and the consequences of those choices look a little bit different, but the choices they all make are all in response to um, the same challenges, which have everything to do with the fact that they are young female, and royal in the Renaissance. And, you know, for all of them, the number one duty, uh, the number one job of of a queen is to get pregnant and successfully give birth to children, especially the heir. And the pressures of that, um, the political pressures of that Definitely take a toll on all three of them. So I, I wanted to start to map out. I wanted to begin with Catherine uh, because you see how, from the very beginning, um, as a very very young child, she's thrust into this political role, and um, and then of course you know that the the consequences of her um, being a kind of a political figure, even as a very young child. Uh, play out over the next, over really the rest of her life and certainly affect, um, the lives of her daughter and daughter-in-law as well.
2: That's really interesting. And you forget that again, like how young they are and they're being told like, so think about children. (laughs) Like I am a child. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's
1: right. And, and, and you really see that with Elizabeth. I mean, there, there, I think to modern readers, some of her experiences, um, well, they sound almost abusive, but I, but I want to say that this was, this was true for all young women in the Renaissance, you know, young royal women and aristocratic women. So not necessarily royalty, but nobility um, are expected to make these dynastic marriages that um, further the ambition of their families, which means that they're often sent to their homes of their husbands by the time they're 14 years old. And even though, you know, families, you know, might try to let them mature a little bit, they're expected to sleep, they're expected to sleep with their husbands by the time they're 14 or 15. So, you know, again, these are, these are things that, that to us feel almost like child abuse, but the whole system is built on this type of, um, you know, transaction, this, this, this sort of market of, 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 of young girls.
2: Hmm. So what are some interesting, um, you know, so you've got Catherine de Medici, she's the mother, she's the matriarch, she's got these two young women, one is her own child, one is married into her family. Does she, I mean, she must play, since these things pass on to the next generation, she must play a role in, you know, Enabling that system to continue oh, to exist. Oh yes,
1: right? yeah. I mean, they can't. Yeah. They can't fight against the system, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think one thing that's important to you know sort of say in you know whenever we're talking about fem- feminism is the ways in which women are, whether willfully or not, play into the system, right? Because they have to, you know. So um, that is definitely true for Catherine, who's quite ambitious. Um, for her, for her own children. Um, You know, so Catherine is Italian on her dad's side. She's a Medici. They are very wealthy. They are very powerful. They control Florence, um, but they're, but they're not royal, uh, which is quite important actually to Catherine's story. But on her mother's side, she's a French princess. Her mother was a French princess. So, um, so Catherine is sort of half royal, half not. And, and that, that, that kind of stays with her Um, for her entire life. And I I often wonder, um, well, I I would say, I I think that that, you know, sort of having to move past that Medici legacy um, determines a lot of the choices that Catherine makes, including her relationship to these these young women, her daughter, Elizabeth, and her daughter-in-law, Mary. So Mary does marry into Catherine's family um, but Mary first comes to France when she's five years old, and um, a lot of women are looking after Mary, the young five-year-old Mary, including Catherine in her own way. And um, Catherine was very fond of the young of the young Mary. And and I should also point out too that Mary and Elizabeth were childhood friends; they um, shared a bedroom. <laughs> so Elizabeth is um, she's three years younger than Mary, but she's one of the first. Uh, children that Mary meets when Mary first comes to France. So Catherine plays a very important role in the lives of both of these young women, even though they were raised in the Royal Nursery, which was physically distant from where Catherine was um, in Paris. Catherine is a very doting mother, uh, kind of a helicopter mom actually. And she eventually (laughs) becomes a pretty controlling mother, And I think that might be for a couple of reasons. One, because Catherine herself was an orphan and also because it took 10 years for Catherine to get pregnant. And this was very traumatic for her because, as I said before, women are expected to bear the heir or children and she couldn't do it. So, um, you know, when she finally does get pregnant and has her children, she just she just loves them to death. Really, she's almost kind of smothering. But so she um, she plays a very important um, role, one that is built on duty and loyalty, but also love. Certainly between Catherine and Elizabeth, Catherine really loves her daughter Elizabeth, and Elizabeth really loves Catherine. Now Catherine's relationship to Mary does shift because even though she's quite fond of Mary when Mary was a child, eventually. Politics comes in, and the important thing to know is that even though Mary is related to Catherine through marriage, she's not related by any sort of close blood kinship bond, and that is going to make all the difference. Um, one thing that Mary will discover when she's older is that blood is thicker than water <laughs> and that Catherine and Elizabeth share a certain kind of bond that that Mary will never enjoy.
2: That's got to be tough, right? Because she's also like, this is the only home she's really known because she came when she was five, right? So she's kind of yeah. like the ugly stepchild <laughs> right <laughs> except for the opposite she's the ugly steptile but opposite but but you, you you've
1: actually hit the nail on the head because so so when mary comes to france um first of all she's this young reigning queen mary uh, becomes the queen of scotland at five days old because or sorry nine days old because her um her father dies and it is kind of rare to be uh girl queen, a reigning girl queen. I mean, you have boy queen, kings in the Renaissance. You have boy kings, but you don't have as many girl queens. And on top of it, Mary is stunning. From the time she's five years old, she is definitely like, you know, she's the it girl. (laughs) She's tall. She's very attractive. um, She's very articulate. She's older than all the French royal children. So as soon as she slips in there into that French royal nursery she kind of rules the roost. You know how there are these kids people in general but kids who just I don't know they have something. It's like a charisma, right? Like a je ne sais quoi. Well, Mary definitely had that. She and she had everyone kind of in her thrall from the time she she lands there. She does it through personality, but her political importance is also um pivotal to that to that um, or key to that charisma because um her future father-in-law, the king of France, Henry II, is hoping that by marrying his son to Mary, Queen of Scots, he will eventually get control of Scotland and England. So he is using Mary as um, a, a way to achieve his imperial ambitions. And, and and that is one of the ways in which Mary is quite representative, again, of the condition of young royal girls um, at the time is that they are used as pawns. They, you know, through marriage, men, kings, or, you know, men who are the patriarchs of powerful families can, can build their empires or their kingdoms or their careers. Um, so Mm -hmm. this happens over and over again. So, so she's not ugly. Yeah, She's (laughs) She's not ugly. She's gorgeous. And everyone loves her. But I, but I think that, you know, even possibly quite early on that was a little bit of a thorn in Catherine's side, because, you know, I don't know how she felt about the fact that, you know, Mary uh, commanded so much attention, even as a young child, sometimes at the expense of her own children.
2: Hmm. So Mary queen of Scots is married to the firstborn son heir, right? Yes. Francis. Who yeah. will become and Francis the second. Yes. And he is kind of a sickly kid, right? And he doesn't survive. You
1: know, again, I, you know, these are these things that sometimes it is so hard to kind of get a, a really authentic picture because a lot of our understanding of these people um, has been affected by the reporting in the centuries since, since, right? And that reporting through propaganda or, or you know, history um, is often very influenced by various different agendas. So, you know, the, Francis, when, by the time he becomes king, well, he's only 15 when he becomes king and he doesn't last very long, just 18 months. And then and then he does die because he is he is sick. But because he only reigned for a short time, um, it, we have less of a true picture than, you know, we would have had had he lived for, for longer. So, you know, he seems to be, all the French royal ch- children seem to be fairly robust when they're young. Sure, they get sick, childhood illnesses, and, you know, they've got, they've got some issues, but they do live. <laughs> you know, and a lot of children, we're dealing with a, with a period of time when a lot of children die. A lot um, before the age of seven. So the fact that you know Francis lives into his teens shows that he couldn't have been so sickly, right? You know. Um, So, but but he he's immature, you know. And again, if you kind of look at these young teenage boys, boys, you know, mature at like girls at at different rates and. He just is a little bit on the immature side, both physically and um and emotionally, I think. So when he inherits the throne, he's completely unprepared. And and Mary is also completely unprepared.
2: And when he dies, she that's the end of her time in France. Like she goes back or is she? Yes. Nope. That is the end of the time of her time in
1: France. She's about 18 years old. And, you know, she's at that point considered the queen dowager meaning she's the widow of the king who has died. She does not succeed in getting pregnant when she is with Francis. Had she had a child, um, that child would have become the next, well, if that child was a boy, that child would have been become the next king of France. Um, and maybe then she would have, that would have been a reason for her to stay in France, um, but she doesn't have the child. So she's kind of, you know, wandering for a little um, a little while in France. And, and she did have the option to stay. But eventually, uh, partially in response to the demands of her Scottish subjects, and also because she's pushed by her French family, her French relatives, the Guise, to return to Scotland and take charge there. But the thing is, is that... Um, While she lived in France, Mary really let the adults around her rule Scotland. So her mother, um, whose name was Marie de Guise, stayed in Scotland and effectively ruled Scotland in Mary's place. And then she also got a lot of advice from her French uncles, the Guises, who were very, very powerful in France. And so, you know, she she kind of lets the adults do the ruling. So she herself never really gets a great education in how to do this. And then she's thrust back, you know, in Scotland and has to take over.
2: And her story, once I feel like most people learn her story from that point forward because of her tension with Queen Elizabeth I of England. Yes um and you know there's been some many films that have dramatized that that experience and life so her her life has a pretty tragic end with at least an accusation of treason yeah oh yeah you know but I think that all of that tragedy
1: has something to do with her childhood in France Mm. I think like you said it earlier you know France was really her country. You know, she's raised to be a French young woman. And more importantly, she's raised to be the queen consort of France, which is an exalted position. And France is in a very old kingdom, it's much more important than Scotland. It was really you know, the pinnacle of, of Mary's success to become the French queen consort, even more so than the reigning queen of Scotland. Mm. So, so she's used to this idea, right? Like she's the it girl, she's in the spotlight, she's the French queen consort, and she's the reigning queen of Scotland. And then she goes back to Scotland and she doesn't have it anymore. She doesn't have that, you know, French, um, that French crown anymore. Um, the English crown that she wants so badly is kind of in her sights, but she doesn't have it yet. She's got this crown of Scotland, which is really important to her, but it's not as good as the crown of of France. And it seems to me that all she wants is to be back where she used to be, Mm. you know, like she, she kind of has this identity crisis and Mm. the rest of her life, the rest of her story is about trying to get back to that place that she once was. You know, both mentally and possibly even physically.
2: I'm I'm sure that identity crisis, like that, must come through in letters or things that she exchanges with her French family or with the Medici royal family. You know, like yeah. Well, you know, pretty quickly, uh, Mary
1: starts to realize that Catherine de Medici doesn't trust her. So oh, she's okay. you know, she, there. There is this kind of like you know wall that gets put up in the letters. Um, mm. but, but when, when Mary does need help, which she does <laughs> a lot when she gets back to Scotland, um, you definitely hear that in the letters and, and she's constantly calling upon their history together and their former relationship. Um, mm. and, and the other thing, the little, the little inkling that to me is just so sad and, and, and tragic is that, Um, So Mary was very, I I, I don't think I've explained this, but so so Mary on her father's side is is Scottish, but on her mother's side, she's effectively French. Um, The Guise family, that that other side, and they're actually from Lorraine, which is an independent duchy, but for all intents and purposes, they are a French family. And um, they're also related to, uh, you know, distantly to the French royal family. So Mary is very close to her French grandmother. And whenever Mary has a problem in Scotland, she says, maybe maybe I could go and live for a time with my grandmother in France. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: You know, like you just sense this sort of pining, you know, mm-hmm. this, this kind of desire. And um, she often looks to her, gra- when, she, when, when no one else will help her, she often looks to her grandmother for her advice Um, because she had, you know, immense respect for her grandmother, but, but that grandmother was also very much kind of a mother figure for her. Um, so yeah, you, you do, you feel this longing, um, in the letters.
2: I know that tragic story. She's, you know, forced to, she has two more marriages in her time, short time in Scotland. She's forced to abdicate the throne because of all the Scottish people who, politically dominate things and and whatever and then ultimately is is imprisoned and executed by her cousin, right? Which is just like the worst end yeah. to a life, you know, as you're like already depressed and pining for France. But what I don't know about is what happens to Catherine de' Medici's daughter, who lives only 23 years. So yes. What happens to right. her in this time? okay so yeah. So one of the reasons why the book
1: ends why it when it does in 1568 is because that's the year of the of the downfall of both the young queens mary mary queen of scots and elizabeth de valois but elizabeth de valois downfall is very very different um some would say it's not even a downfall it's just a it's just a tragic death um so so elizabeth yes no one's heard of her (laughs) unless you really study the period um, the the reason why. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, No, understandably. So she's Catherine de' Medici's first daughter and second child. Um, and, you know, daughters are as important um, as sons uh, in, in a royal family. Uh, certainly in a royal family uh, like the French royal family, you have to understand that um, girls and women cannot inherit the throne in France. Unlike Spain, unlike Scotland, unlike England, you cannot have a ruling queen um, of of France. So sons are super important to the French, but daughters are also important for the same reason why they're important everywhere else, because they are used to make dynastic alliances. And Elizabeth is married at 13 um, to Philip II of Spain, who is quite famous because of the Armada, right? His his dealings with um, Elizabeth Tudor later on. At the time, she's 13 and Philip is 33 years old. He's 20 years older than her and Elizabeth is slated to be his third wife. And the reason why they're getting married, and this shows the political importance of of young girls, is that her marriage is part of a peace treaty ending generations of war between France and Spain. These wars are called the Italian Wars. I know it's totally confusing, but that's because France and Spain are fighting over territories in in Italy. They're fighting for domination of Italy. So, you know, by the time 1559 rolls around, uh, Henry II of France and Philip II of Spain are tired of these wars. They've depleted their treasuries and the reformation is picking up, particularly in France. And so Henry II is very nervous about that, and he wants to turn all his attention to what's going on in France. Um, so Elizabeth is married as part of this peace treaty, and she is sent off to Spain. But the the, the whole marriage is basically built on a very traumatic event because um at her wedding during the celebrations, her father, Henry II, decides he wants to impress the Spanish, and he's going to uh, fight in the tournaments, or he's going to ride in the tournaments, A jest. And there's a horrible freak accident, and he's mortally injured and dies 10 days later. And that's the moment where his son, Francis, takes over with his wife, Mary Queen of Scots, and she becomes the Queen Consort of France. But, you know, Elizabeth has just gotten married, and she's 13 years old, no one will know if the peace treaty is going to hold. Finally, Catherine, um, who she tried to delay um, and keep Elizabeth in France for a little bit longer, but finally Catherine is forced to send Elizabeth to Spain. And so Elizabeth uh, basically rides into Spain on the heels of this very traumatic event and leaves behind both a mother who is grieving and um, a kingdom, her home kingdom of France, which is kind of in disarray because of the recent death of her father. So that's how her married life begins. (laughs) And you can imagine, you know, she's only 13 years old. Um, She's still playing with toys and dolls and with her little girlfriends. Like we have evidence of this. And one of the most astounding things about Elizabeth de Valois is that we actually have A ton of documentation about her years in Spain, um, particularly around her health and her relationship with her ladies-in-waiting and her relationship with her mother. And that is because, as I said before, Catherine de' Medici was very much a helicopter parent. She's a controlling mom. She has spies in Spain, but she also has very, very loyal um ambassadors and um, female diplomats who will report everything to her, and she wants to know everything that's going on with Elizabeth. So we have this wonderful paper trail of information. Um, Now, just to give Catherine a little bit of a break, she's a controlling mom, but you can kind of understand it because now, you know, her teenage son has just inherited the throne of France and she really wants to make sure that Elizabeth is settled and that the peace treaty remains intact between um, France and Spain. So it's really important for her that Elizabeth succeed as queen in Spain in order to keep that 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 peace going between the two kingdoms. Um, the problem is, is that Elizabeth, like her mother, has um, an infertility problem. For years and years, she cannot get pregnant. And for a woman who's in the position of queen consort, that is a terrible place to be because a woman's security um, in court, on the throne, as the wife to the king. Is only assured if she gives birth to the heir. Um, otherwise, she could be repudiated. She could be sent back. And Catherine is terrified that that's what's going to happen. That Philip II is going to see her daughter as damaged goods and send her back. And then the peace treaty will will falter. Do
2: you want me to go on? <laughs> I don't know. I need to know. Okay, yes. Should have googled this because now I need to. Does she (laughs) eventually get pregnant?
1: Yes, she does. Oh, Um, oh, she does. And uh, Catherine tries to help in every way that she can. Uh, You know, actually, some of this correspondence is so touching because Catherine is like. The mother you kind of don't want, but also the mother you do want, and also the mother-in-law that no man wants, you know, like she, she is really meddling and, you know, definitely tries to impose herself. And, you know, Elizabeth does grow up. She is always very attached to her mother. And this kind of annoys Philip II, but but she she does manage to kind of, you know, eventually, you know, create some distance, which you can imagine in some ways is a little bit easier to do then than now. Because correspondence is all through letter, it takes weeks, you know, to um, to receive or send anything. And when Elizabeth gets to Spain, she's still a young teenager. So Philip and the rest of the Spanish court really have a good opportunity to mold her into a Spanish queen, which they effectively do. Even so, Elizabeth does remain quite faithful to, to France. And, and in some ways, this, this was really expected of her and actually of all royal women is that they were expected to be the intermediary between, between families. Um, so Elizabeth does advocate for France, but she also advocates for Spain. In that way, you can kind of see how, how the position of wife, certainly a royal wife, is very much a diplomatic one. Um, you know, it's, she, she comes to embody that kind of idea of compromise between the two kingdoms, even so, you know, she really does have to get pregnant and, and bear a child. So she she does get pregnant, but the thing is, is that Elizabeth is only able to give birth to girls, um, no fault of hers. Right. But that's what happens. So it's not perfect, but a couple of things, you know, keep Elizabeth in Philip's good graces. First of all, he really likes her. Uh, you know, it, it's not clear that he really cared that much about her early on, but he he really grows to like her. And actually the whole Spanish court, they they really love Elizabeth. Um, she she really charmed them. Philip already has a son by his first wife. His name is Don Carlos, who's also kind of famous and notorious and has been mythologized. But Don Carlos is um we're not quite sure the nature of his disability, but he's disabled in some way. Um, he's, he's very unstable. And so Philip realizes that Don Carlos is probably not going to be uh, the young man who can inherit the throne of Spain. So that does put more pressure on Elizabeth. She she only does have girls. But even so, once a woman is able to get pregnant and have a child, even if that child is, is a girl, it, 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 it still bodes well that maybe she eventually could have a a boy in the future. That is what sort of underlies the the whole saga of Henry VIII, right? It's like when his Queens do get pregnant, he still hopes that eventually they will have have a boy. Same thing is true in in other countries as well. But Elizabeth dies when she's 23 because of um, complications in her third pregnancy. And so another interesting detail about Elizabeth um, that I don't think I've quite said yet is that we have a lot of information about her physical, her physical health because Catherine de' Medici (laughs) was writing about it all the time. And Elizabeth struggled a lot. Actually, a lot of these young women struggle physically, which might have something to do with the stress of being a young royal woman. Um, at the time, but Elizabeth really does. She has a number of health problems, and they really rear their head during her third pregnancy, and ultimately, um, it kills her. So, so the tragedy is that you know to do her duty as a queen, she has to get pregnant, she has to bear a child, but in the end, that could be the thing that that kills you. And this is mm-hmm. true not just of her, but of any of any woman in the Renaissance. I mean the the rates of um, Mortality and childbirth are extremely high. And so most women, um, certainly royal women, aristocratic women, uh, write their wills before while they're pregnant, you know, before they go into to labor because they know there's a good chance that they will die.
2: So I, it's kind of interesting that you ended there because she's dying, doing like her job as a woman in that time, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the
1: subtitle, so my subtitle of the book, the book's called The Young Queens, but the subtitle is Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. And I chose that subtitle because I, I wanted to put the emphasis on the women, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, these are particular queens, some of you, some of whom you've heard of and others you haven't, but they're these are first and foremost women. And their stories mm-hmm. are often echoed um in the stories of other women you know of the time period. And then the second half of the of the subtitle is The Price of Power. Mm-hmm. Because in the end there is a cost to all this and th- that cost, you know, has many different faces, but certainly for Elizabeth you you, you pay that price with your own life. That's what you did. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely Mary Queen of Scots too. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean the, the 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 real irony, the paradox with Mary Queen of Scots is that she does give birth to a boy successfully, but then that child is what allows her enemies to depose her. She does what she's supposed to do, but she loses anyways.
2: Wow. Well, I, I, I'm i sitting here going, there are so many things that I could ask you, but I feel like people just need to read your book because this is so cool. <laughs> and um, And I think, you know, going back to the earlier commentary about how important this is, Especially in the United States, I think there's sort of like a, if it came before US history, could it really be that important? And yes, is the answer. And I think one of the things that's so crucial about all of these characters that if there's people that are like, yeah, that's interesting, but like, I don't really know how to incorporate it, is that you know, Philip, who we were just talking about, goes to war with Queen Elizabeth because she executes Mary, Queen of Scots, um, and also to sort of like, you know, spread Catholicism and take out the Protestant Queen and all those things. Right. And he loses. And I think had he not lost that conflict, um, we might be speaking Spanish right now, like, you know, like, well, so I think there's a lot exactly. of consequences and all, of this period. All, all of that goes back, had Elizabeth of
1: lived, she might have been able to help Mary. In fact, I don't want to give too much away, but Mary asks Elizabeth for help, um, yeah. but it's too late, you know. Yeah. And there, there are a number of things, but but also in terms of, of today, you know, uh, I wrote this book as someone who's like, you know, quite informed by, uh, you know, um, sort of a feminist approaches to to history, to literature, and, and sort of thematically, one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize here is the ways in which women, young women and women's bodies have always been politicized. I mean, that is something that we are grappling with. And I am trying to bring forward in this book is that, you know, young women's bodies have always been politicized with huge political consequences. They're, they're, you know, that has always been part of, you know, establishing these systems of power. So thematically, I do think that there are a number of parallels with today, even if, you know, it seems like it's from long ago.
2: Well, that's an amazing way to end, I think. Um. How can people find your book? Where is it? (laughs) Anywhere that
1: you buy your books, Amazon or independent bookstores or through Farrar, Strauss and Giroux, who's publishing um, the U.S. edition. Really anywhere uh, you can find a book, you will find Young Queen. So I hope that readers enjoy it.
2: Oh, well, I can't wait. I can't wait to share this with everybody.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been really fun to talk about it. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until
2: next time.